When you think of space travel and all the things that can go wrong, drowning while on a spacewalk does not come top of mind. Hear one astronaut's story of survival and his incredible vision of what life's all about. This episode is brought to you by the Podcast Services Division at Lifestuff Media. Having your own podcast allows you to creatively reach all types of audiences, from clients to prospects, to your most loyal membership base. And by utilizing studio affiliates located around the world, coupled with quality remote recording capabilities, Lifestuff Media makes having a corporate podcast easier than ever before. Contact us for a no-obligation consultation at info at or visit lifestuff.com to learn more. This is Life's Tough, but explorers are tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weiss Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore, It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club. Just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer, and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. Our guest today is Italian astronaut Luca Parmitano, the first Italian to walk in space, and equally famous for his second spacewalk in which his helmet began to fill with water, posing a danger of drowning while in space. Welcome, Luca. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Richard. It's really a pleasure being here. Luca, you know, it's interesting. You have uh, flown into space, and, you know, those are always exciting missions. What I always find interesting about uh, people like yourself is there's other missions in life. Like just before you came on here, uh, you know, you, you had your daughter, she has her tryout for the uh, choir. It's raining really hard. So it, it, you have different missions to it. So you coexist between two worlds. I co- I think I coexist between multiple worlds, as a matter of fact, multiple realities. And it's, uh, that's true for everybody. There's a, there's a side that is incredibly personal and it's just very much about me, of which I'm not afraid or ashamed. 
And then there is a side that is for the family. It's where I am a dedicated father uh, that loves to spend time with their daughters. And just like every father, I am, you know, walking this very thin line between being cool and being terrible uh, <laughs> with my teenage daughters. And then there is a there is a public side, which is what I'm using right now to talk to you and presenting to you know a vast population and and then there's a professional side and and so many others there is a very famous sicilian writer and you with your sicilian background you should you should uh, try and find him his name is luigi pirandello he was a nobel prize winner he wrote a novel called one nobody and One Hundred Thousand, talking about the many faces that we just have to wear in our lives well, you know, you mentioned my Sicilian background, and um, you and I have discussed it a little. You grew up in Catania, Sicily, which has Greek ruins. You have Mount Etna. Uh, you look over the Ionian Sea. And and I, I dare say this, you probably have the best food in the world there. So what's it like growing <laughs> up in Catania, and how does that relate to actually becoming an astronaut? The second question is pretty hard. Let's let's try to answer the first one. As far as I can recall, I just had a wonderful, wonderful childhood growing up. Uh, I never, you never, you know, you don't realize it, but people go to Catania and the surrounding areas for vacation because of the wonderful weather, because of the wonderful scenery, our our sea, the mountains, the food. But when you're growing up, that's just your city. And you don't realize that it's it's a wonderful place to be at. And then when you move away, you start looking at it from far away, from many other places that you've seen. And you're like, wow, my my island really is a wonderful place. And that, you know, in a way explains my uh, my memories of childhood being being so wonderful. I had a very simple family. My my parents are were teachers. And like teachers all over the world, they did not make a lot of money, but they did everything they could to make my brother and I feel uh, feel taken care of. And we didn't miss anything. We didn't we didn't want anything. Um, and but that kind of does not quite explain my my desire to uh, to be something else. Uh, and um, to answer your second question. I I believe that my my desire to to move away or to be something different uh, came from my grandfather's my grand, grandfather from my mom's side. He was the first and only professional military uh, in our family until he gave up the military career to go back to his hometown and and become a policeman and then eventually the commander of the police force in the town. And, you know, maybe you are born with that sense or desire for discipline, but that's the earliest memory I have of wanting to be, to, to join the military and then, or to fly. And, and uh, you know, I, I, it's hard to relate. It's hard to relate my career to growing up in Sicily. I, somehow, I, I think I just, I just had it in me that that's what I wanted. Well, you know, it's interesting because let's face it, everybody is from someplace and, you know, is there ever the perfect uh, place to grow up to do anything, right? I, I suppose um, some of the earlier astronauts, they all lived either in Houston or in Florida and they all lived in close proximity. So you 
knew other astronauts or you knew their families, but was there sort of a moment when you, do you remember your earliest space moments? Uh, for me, it really was the Apollo missions. Uh, you know, you're, you're younger than me. So what was your first space, uh, sort of memories? So, uh, I've tried to to think about that. So it, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. So, in a way, being in Sicily is as far away as you can be from a professional world like the one of astronauts. There, there was nothing, nothing in Catania in the periphery of Europe and uh, really of Italy uh, that would uh, take me to to space. So I think that what my, my earliest memory and connection to space is TV and the space shuttle. I just remember that uh, growing up with Japanese cartoons about space and space battles and, and uh, uh, you know, space monsters, space invasions and aliens and robots. In my childhood fantasies, the world of, of spacefaring of the anime and the, the first space shuttle missions that were happening as I was growing up, and even the collective memory of the Apollo missions, they were all one, one big reality mixed with fantasy. And, and I know that because one of my very earliest memories was when I was learning to swim uh, between three and four years old, and I was in a swimming pool. Uh, I remember that my big brother he was already swimming in a big boy's pool and I was in the kiddie pool. And uh, I, I remember this very, very, very clearly because I wanted to learn how to dive like my brother. And there was this, uh, this uh, trainer. Uh, it was, it was a, a young, maybe a young teenager. And she wanted to break the ice with these kids, you know, three, four years old, all in the kiddie pools. And what's the easiest thing to ask uh, a bunch of kids? Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And there is always the one that wants to be a firefighter. There's the one that wants to be a doctor. And I remember that I, I said, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. Now, I might as well, I might as well have replied, I want to be Spider-Man. It, <laughs> it was exactly in the same fantasy world. But that's the first time I said, I want to be an astronaut. And then I remember that growing up, there was one definite moment when I was already you know, in, uh, in school, maybe seven or eight years old or nine, when I understood for the first time that we had been to the moon, but we were not on the moon at that moment. I just, I just assumed that people were going to the moon with the space shuttle and were walking on the moon. And there was this moment, this haha moment where I realized, hey, we only been there six times a long time ago. I wasn't even born and we're not there anymore. But at the same time, I thought this, this must be the coolest job that you could ever have growing up. So, so space was there in the environment, in the air, in the minds of people as this amazing, amazing place. And then in my life, it disappeared for many years because again, I grew up in Sicily and my parents were teachers. And so like many other kids, I thought, Hey, I'm going to be a teacher one day, which in a way I am. But, um, being being a, an astronaut was truly truly a dream. You know, I'm not sure if you um, realize this, but the first astronaut uh, born in Italy was actually Michael Collins, 
who was born in Rome, who, you know, unfortunately just passed away. Uh, do, do, do you have in your career, did you ever talk to any of those Apollo guys or Gemini guys and uh, sort of compare notes? I have. I have. It is one of my fondest stories because I, I talked to, to Collins from space, from orbit. He was a mission control center and wow. we were celebrating because we launched on the anniversary of the 50th anniversary of the moon landing on July 20th of uh, 2019. So exactly 50 years after the moon landing. So we, we got a chance to talk to, uh, to Collins, but that was from far away. I, however, I did get a personal chance to talk to one of the astronauts that I really, really admire and that I, I consider uh, truly a mentor and um, an inspiring figure, and it's Gene Cernan. Sure. I, I met Gene Cernan just really briefly at the, at the clinic, at the flight clinic, where we were both getting our physical one day, and uh, we just crossed, and, and I was like, holy smokes, that's, that's Gene Cernan. And I just stood up and I said, sir, I, I don't want a selfie. I, don't, I, I just want to introduce myself because I, I just want you to know that, that, that I, am, I, I am incredibly honored just to be in your presence. And I just told him that, and he was very appreciative of the fact that I was not invasive at all. And then imagine when two years later, I found myself sitting at, a, at the same table at a conference about space flight and spacewalks I was in a conference table sitting next to Gene Cernan and next to the first um, Russian to ever perform an EVA, first person in, ever. Uh, I was next to um, Alex Leonov. Tom Stafford, who was the commander of the Apollo, uh, Apollo Soyuz mission, Gene Cernan and uh, sp uh, spacewalk legend Chris Cassidy, who's also one of my good friends. And I was, I was sitting at this table in a conference like, what am I doing among these legends? But then, uh, you know, after the conference, after I told the story about, you know, being in space and doing the spacewalk and surviving one of the, probably one of the most complex accidents ever in spacewalking, imagine when Gene came to me and he's like, hey, Luca, that was an incredible story. Can I, can I take a selfie with you? And I was just, okay, that was, I think that was probably the highlight of my career as an astronaut when an Apollo what a great Apollo astronaut moment. asked to. You know, it, <laughs> that's Apollo why I, I find life sometimes is so strange. Um, you know, I've, I've told this story to people uh, lots of times. I remember, I'm old enough to remember the Apollo 8 mission, and I got a telescope from this department store called Sears, and uh, it was around Christmas time. And I used to look through there and I, I used to think if I look just hard enough, just hard enough, I'll see the spacecraft, you know, going around the moon. I didn't have the, a sense of perspective of, of size and distance. And then um, I have met the, those people. I've met Michael Collins and, um, and uh, now I've met like nine Apollo astronauts. And wow. uh, for you, because you're, you're in many respects doing way more complicated things uh, that they are scientifically, but you have to have an admiration for those guys because the simplicity of what they had and just, uh, you know, they had to be really pilots. They had to be pilots in space. It was not so automated. And when you hear um, Neil Armstrong in his last moment maneuver over rocks or you hear about Al Warden 
who just passed away this year as well, uh, navigating by the stars on the way home. I mean, it gives you goosebumps. I I read a lot of books about about those guys, uh, biography, autobiographies, uh, the 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 incredible uh, Man on the Moon uh, book by Andy Weir. I I, uh, I I believe that all that those guys just uh, you know they were selected uh, among test pilots because really it was it was really an ultimate test flight and my admiration towards them is infinite, especially now that I have experienced some of the emotions and uh, and the complexities of spaceflight. To imagine that they did it with one-tenth of the computing power of a, of a, of a telephone that we have today is, is just, it's almost unbelievable. Yeah, it really is. Those guys, I, I always uh, think of them, you know, I, I think a lot of people think of them as world heroes because uh, NASA everybody felt like they were part of during that time period. So how were you eventually selected uh, for the astronaut for ESA, which is the European Space Agency? So how, how did that selection process happen? So this is a great story because right now we are having a selection for the, the new class of astronauts that will join the European Space Agency. So if any of them are listening, it's, uh, maybe it will inspire them. But it, so to me, uh, growing up again, growing up in the 80s and the 90s, I just had this idea that, hey, you want to be an astronaut? You have to, you have to be like Neil Armstrong and uh, Buzz Aldrin and test Michael Collins. You have to be a test pilot. And I was like, well, I would love to fly. And I would love to fly fast. And I would love to fly low. And I would love to fly high. So I'm going to... I'm going to try out for the Italian Air Force Academy because that's the way to become a pilot, right? So I didn't know that uh, the, the, in Italy, it's not like in the U.S. where we, you have uh, you apply and you have a letter of recommendation and then you go to the, uh, to the Air Force Academy, which is like a, a huge college in Colorado. But in Italy, the Air Force Academy is, measured, is you know, sized for Italy. So we have about maybe, maybe 80 cadets per year. And uh, about 10 times the, the, the number applied, or actually 100 times, because we have about 8,000 applications every year. And uh, you go through a selection process that lasts about eight, eight months. It's pretty tough. But as soon as I finished high school, I applied and, uh, and I got in. And we were all surprised. We were like, well, I, I, that, great, cool. So, and I went, to, I went to the Air Force Academy. Uh, which is a four-year college. And then I actually um, was transferred to the United States, uh, to not, not too far away from where we are. In, uh, I'm in Houston right now. And uh, the, school, the flight school I went to is in uh, Wichita Falls. It's called Shepard Air Force Base. Very famous among the pilots world because it's probably one of the best schools in the world to get your wings. After that, I became a fighter pilot. I went back to Italy. I flew as a fighter pilot for seven years. And then uh, I had two options in my career, three options. One, I could stay a fighter pilot and go through the whole, uh, the whole chain uh, you know, ch until I became a, a squadron commander, uh, wing commander, and so on. The second option was to uh, try for the aerobatic team. Italy has a very famous aerobatic team, the Frecce Tricolori, very celebrated. Uh, they, they do beautiful aerobatics and uh, it, 
and it's a super cool team. And I had the chance to uh, to join them. But uh, what I really wanted to do was be a test pilot because hey, that's how that's the road to become to become an astronaut. And if you don't, you are a test pilot, which is which would be awesome. You get to fly a little bit of everything. So again, um, in Italy, the way it works is that you can't apply to be a test pilot. The Air Force has to indicate you uh, to go to a, through a selection. And in order to, to be in that, in that selection, you have to be a, in the top 10% of your class and come from a, from a fighter pilot community. So I was lucky enough to be in that uh, small uh, group of people. And I went through the selection and sure enough, uh, luckily enough, I, I got selected. And uh, I, I think you're know. being very modest because there's a lot of, you keep saying luckily, you had to have been a good student in high school. You had to have been good in the academy. And then when you were flying as a test pilot, you had to be good. So I, I have a hard time measuring those kind of things because in sure. my experience, it's always a matter of situation and context. And this is what I mean. When I was selected as a test pilot, my classmates that participated with me, they're all good. They still are. They were good. They were, uh, they were good students. They were great pilots. They are great pilots, good people. But at that moment, I just happened to be the right man at the right time because my family situation, because of my, uh, because of my background in that moment, because of what the Air Force was looking in their test pilots. If they, let's say that they had been looking for a specific qualification that was only for Eurofighter uh, or Typhoon drivers. Then, I, then if they were looking for that kind of specification, then I would not have been um, the right candidate. But at that moment with, my, with the amount of training I'd had and the right uh, uh, airplane and the right missions and everything coming together, I just was the right guy. So. A little bit is part of, uh, you know, just trying to be the best of what you can be. But a lot of it is just, it's just context. And the exact same thing I'm going to say, it's for becoming an astronaut. As soon as, you know, I got my, my uh, test pilot certificate and I, I thought this is the best place I can be. I'm a, I'm a test pilot. I'm flying anything from helicopters to cargoes to fighters. And then ISA came out with, with, a, with a selection. And I thought, Okay, uh, wow, uh, selection for astronauts. And my first thought was, I am the youngest, the newest test pilot in my squadron. There's no way they're going to select me. So why try? That was my very first thought. And, and I told my friends, I told my friends, I'm like, no, this is, this is not the right time for me. I, I'm too young. I don't have enough experience. Uh, I, I should just wait for the next selection when I have more experience and I am more competitive. And, you know, my good friends were like, hmm, okay, if that's what you say, um, fine. And, uh, but none of them was really supportive of that, of, of that motivation. And then one, and then one morning, this, this is one of, this is one of those pivoting moments. I was having coffee with my current squadron commander, that chief of the test pilot squadron. So the most experienced test pilot in the squadron. I was having coffee with him and he looks at me he's like, so are you going, I, you said that you wanted to be an astronaut. Are you, uh, have you applied for the selection? And I'm like, ah, oh, no, sir. I'm, you know, I'm the youngest one in the squadron. So I, I don't think I have a chance. And he's like, 
well, if you don't apply, you certainly don't have a chance. Yeah, that's true. You should apply anyway. And then I was like, well, if I, it, it was the pivoting moment. It's like, well, if my squadron commander thinks that I can, then I probably should. And that was it. So then that, that same day, I sent, I, I did the whole application online and got all the certificates and all the papers. And uh, over the course of a couple of days, I put every, all the package together and then send it in. And then almost exactly a year later, I was being presented introduced to the public as the one of the newest astronauts of but the how did you find out classes. but how did you find out this got you know there's got to be oh, either gosh. a phone call or a letter or an email i mean that's that's one of those so, moments you stare or you just feel numb so around a year later after making it all the way to the final interview we knew that there were 10 of us and that they were going to announce four to six candidates. So I had uh, between 40 and 60% chances of being that astronaut. Wow. At that time, I was, I, had, I was in an exchange with the French Air Force. I was working for, uh, for the French Air Force at, the, at their test uh, center in uh, southern France. And about a week before they were going to announce the new astronauts, I was in Finland and I got an, an exchange a text message with one of the one other candidate. And uh, his name is Andy Mogensen. And we, you know, I was in Finland, he was in them in uh, the UK, and we exchanged his text like, Look, have you heard anything? And I'm like, We, we had met at the medical, and I was like, I haven't, I haven't heard anything. I think I'm out. I mean, this is. Ten day, you know, they said they are going to announce the candidates on May twentieth. This is May tenth, and I haven't gotten anything. I had, you know, my cell phone is always on twenty four seven. I my emails, I'm checking almost obsessively, and I haven't heard anything. I think I think I'm out. And Andy's like, I think I'm out too. I haven't heard anything. And then it's a week later. That May twentieth was must must have been like a, a Wednesday, and I had the, the weekend where. The weekend before that, I am basically, I'm so demoralized. I'm like, they, you know, I did so my best close. and it just, so close and yet so far, so close. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to think of a way to, to go on, you know, with my test line career. I'm like, this, this is still a great job. I still know what I'm doing. And it's Monday, I'm in France with my family and it's nine o'clock, three days before the announcement. And I get the phone call. And I look at the phone and it's, it's a French number calling me and the headquarters is in Paris. So I, I look at the phone and I must have stared at it for like 10 seconds before replying, before answering. This is nine o'clock in the evening on Monday. Again, remember they are announcing on Wednesday and it's Monday night, nine o'clock. I answer the phone and it's Mr. Krontaler who was one of the directors of ESA who had interviewed me. Uh, for the last interview. And he said, hey, this is this is Krantar Luca, yeah, talking to him. Uh, how are you doing? And I replied, it depends on what you tell me in the next five seconds. <laughs> and he said, well, you think you can make it to Paris next Wednesday? And my reaction is that I started crying. 
I don't blame you. I mean, I come on. Crying. I mean, that's yeah. that's a big deal. I mean, I you know, it's I think you have to put that feeling in a bottle, right? You have to feel that put that feeling in a bottle because in life there's so many ups and downs and those are moments that are so special. I mean, just so special. So yeah. you I'm sure you you probably put on your best face on the phone and you know, we're kind of official, but when you hung up that phone, what happened next? So, funny enough, at that time, um, uh, my my now ex-wife, uh, we we just we had us we had two small daughters in France. Uh, actually, sorry, we had one small daughter, my pregnant wife, and her parents were there. And when they saw me crying, they looked at uh, at Kathy, and they said he did he didn't make it, but Kathy knew exactly. And she said, no, he's fine because he made it. And so I hung up and I'm, and I'm like, we're, we're going to Paris. And, and then, you know, we, we just hugged and, and then what happened is that I didn't sleep for about a week. I mean, I it's, you know, because the realization of, again, you mentioned looking at the TV and seeing astronauts and cosmonauts and, and suddenly you're going to be one of them. And then, you know, I guess, you know, you go through the training and then at some point it's announced that you're going to be the first Italian to walk in space, which maybe is not as oh, good yeah. as being on the World Cup soccer team in Italy, but that's pretty close. Well, maybe not for an Italian, but for me, it was a lot more than being on the, on the national soccer team. Because, first of all, I'm not a big fan of soccer, <laughs> but mostly because, <laughs> mostly because as a... Uh, as a space enthusiast and and because of the way I grew up, what is the image for some kid growing up in the 80s? What is the first image that you that you have of when you think of astronauts? Well it's it's those spacewalking guys around the space shuttle because that, that was the thing at the time that the biggest thing, the biggest news that the best machines of machines available was these the US space shuttle. And the astronauts doing spacewalk around it is what what are astronauts in your mind. So uh, at one point in around 2012, uh, NASA NASA uh, did assign me uh, together with a very experienced uh, astronaut, Chris Cassidy, that was mentioning that uh, we were going to perform two spacewalks for uh, uh, for repairs and the reconfiguration of the space station, and and only one that was going to be reality. I was going to be, uh, I, I was going, I was going to to perform a, a, an EVA, an extravehicular activity, and and we had a special training, and and then, and, and then it was it, it was going to be, and you know, just the, the excitement of having that opportunity is is beyond description, really, because just the way. Uh, the announcement that I was going to be an astronaut was a life-changing moment. The idea of, of, of being a spacewalker was a career opportunity and an incredible professional achievement. And the first. And the first from your country. So I, so I, really, I really want to stress this fact because it's, it comes up quite a bit. Of any astronauts I've met, any, I... I've never seen any of them, and hopefully including myself, actually talking about the records. 
Well, I do actually do know some. I actually do know some. But still, there's got to be national pride. I mean, you know, you you call up your parents or, you know, you say, hey, I'm going to walk in space. And, you know, you come to realize no one from your country ever has. I'm not saying you would brag about it, but it's still a historic fact and, 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 and a mantle that you will always be forever the first Italian to walk in space. It is true, and it lasts for a little bit. But the thing is that there is always going to be a first, right? Sure. Uh, they, 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 there is always going to be the new first. Because if there was the, the first time to walk in space, then there is going to be the first uh, woman to go to the space station, and then she's going to be the first woman and uh, Italian to walk in space. So there's always going to be a new first. So. Yeah, to modern astronauts, uh, current my classmates, the the newer guys that I met in the past ten years, we really don't we really don't talk about it. We we talk about ideas and about about what we can do rather than what we have done. And we do notice, and we do. I mean, we're not naive. We do acknowledge that on from a communication point of view, it just it just makes the news. It's the first Italian to walk in space, the first French commander, the first uh, Italian, the first German commander. It just it makes the news, and it it's a moment of hey, let's there's something to talk about. But but, but to be honest, if you focus on that, you're going to be disappointed really soon. Well, because... probably hated too by your fellow uh, astronauts because no one, you know, I, look, my father was a pilot. He was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane and he'd get together with his friends and everything was just really low key and matter of fact. And, you know, that's just, I know that's the way. That is the way, <laughs> uh, in a Mandalorian way. Yeah, it, that's, that's, uh, the, the... That's that's um, that's usually the way we just uh, talk or uh, converse about these things. We are more more inclined to make fun of ourselves sure. and, and each other than than we are of saying, hey, "Look how great I am," because it it doesn't it really doesn't fly, and and there's no point. You know, uh, I'll give you a very a very simple example. Uh, you know, there's going to be a record of who's got the more days, who's got the, the, yeah, the yeah, more sure. hours doing this or that activity. And how long is it going to last? Until the next guy. And so really, um, it's a lot, a lot better and it works a lot better if you make it about the next guy. So for me, as an Italian performing an extravehicular activity, the statement, the more important statement is, look, we are fully integrated partners. I come from Italy. I am a European astronaut, and I work in a completely integrated team with my uh, U.S. astronauts. And we are one team, one dream, one uh, one crew doing doing really cool things. And then, uh, you know, when my 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 colleague Thomas Pesquet went up in orbit, and I was his crew support, it, it was about him and I'm mentioning him because last week that's that's exactly what we did. He just flew up and I was his crew support and I'm looking forward to him breaking as many records as he can because we do that as a team. And if I can be happy for for his achievements, 
it makes my life a lot easier. I mean, Luca, this is, you know, uh, I mean, we can go on, but I think this is a very good philosophy in the year 2021 because, you know, you see so many athletes or billionaires and it really is trying to be about them. And I often say to people, when you, especially for guys, when you leave the testosterone behind and you're now extending yourself to the nobility of the purpose, you end up with a more fulfilling um role or activity than just beating your chest alone. So I, I think you're that, absolutely right. That is a great way to put it. Yeah. That is a great way to do it. So look, I'm, I am running out of ta time and I do have to, you know, now if there's ever a time to sort of tell a great story or make fun of oneself, <laughs> when you think of all the things that can happen to an astronaut, drowning in space is not one of them. And uh, a mutual friend of ours, Richard Garriott, um, who's also an astronaut, said to me, and Richard knows great stories, by the way, said one of the best stories he's ever heard is your story of your second spacewalk when your helmet began to fill with water. Sure thing. That is a, it is a, it is a good story. And the reason why it is a good story is that I'm here to tell it. <laughs> it's always better, right? When it's happening, it's not such a fun. It, it's a lot it's a lot better when, when I'm here than uh, you know big spoiler alert it went well but um, but the story is is actually pretty simple and it starts with my very first TBA and I'll try to make it short because I know you're running out of time but basically on my first TBA once Chris and I came back from a very very successful TBA we'd repressed the airlock and my helmet fogged up completely. And when we took the helmet a couple of minutes later, I had my, my calm cap, the one that we call the Snoopy cap, was completely drenched. And Karen is like, Luca, well, how, how did you get so much, how did you sweat so much? How did you get so much water and so much fog? And I'm like, you know what? I think my water, my water bottle, that the one that we wear inside the suit, I think it might have leaked during repress. And silly me, you know, I'm a rookie. Uh, I'm a rookie astronaut and i'm a rookie spacewalker i just didn't even realize it ha 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 um and chris is like yeah that's possible and so we completely dismissed this first incident we just we just replaced the water bottle we said all right it's probably a damaged bike bottle so we threw it away and a week later july uh 16th uh we were back going going back outside and i was going out first it was going to i was going to be leading the EVA, it was going to be awesome. And so my, my first my first task was to lay out some cables, which may sound mundane, but if you can imagine a bunch of snakes moving around because they, they have a life of their own, it, it is not easy. So that was my first task. And then I got to my second task and we, and Chris and I were like 40 minutes ahead of our schedule. So we were like, we, we are rocking. We are a great team. And my second task was actually to to do a test, to do a, a capability test. The, the, the ground asked me to wedge myself into a very tight space to see if you can perform some maintenance tasks. So I wedged myself in there and I was talking, I was like, yeah, I can do this motion, I can do this, I can do that, uh, it's all good. Um, and then after we did this test, I pushed myself back out and in doing the motion, I, I felt water water in the back of my head and 
that surprised me because you're not, I mean, you can sweat and there can be a little bit of water inside the, the, a little bit of humidity, but not what I felt. So I, I told the ground, mind it. I did not say Houston, I got a problem. That I'm very proud of that. <laughs> I talk. I said I told Shane, Shane Kimbrough, who is currently in orbit. I, I said, Shane, I uh, just FYI for your information, I feel I feel some water in the helmet. And there there have been instances where you have some water return in the helmet, and it's never been problematic. But then we started talking about it because I felt this this feel like a lot more water than than a little bit of return and. For about 20 minutes, we kept going back and forth. Okay, what, can he, is it coming from your water bottle? I'm like, nope, I sucked it dry. And uh, there's no more water in there. It's not coming for, from the bottle. And then Chris came by from where he was and he started looking. He's like, yeah, I see the water. It's on the side of your head. I'm like, yeah, I feel it creeping. And now I feel it um, covering my, my bald nogging. <laughs> and, uh, and my only concern at that point was if the water gets inside my ears, then it's just like when you're under the shower and you get water in your ear that you don't don't hear really well. And that was my only concern because if you're here from one side but not from the other, it's really a nuisance. I never thought it was gonna be a problem, but I had two thoughts in my head. One, man, don't let it get into my ears because that's that's gonna be uh, that's gonna be annoying to spend six hours talking with just hearing on one side. And two, please don't send me back inside. I just wanna finish my job. There's so many people <laughs> on the ground, not for some water. Oh, and I had a third concern. He's like, did I break something? You know, wedging myself and sure. bumping the bumping the backpack around in the in the structure. Did I, did I break something? Always, always a concern for any astronaut or any pilot. At one point, I felt the water reaching my forehead, and um, and that's when I told, hey Chris, I you know it feels like there's a whole lot of water, and uh, it's it it continues growing. And from the ground, this has been 27 minutes now going back and forth. They heard that and they're like, okay, Luca, we hear your concern. The plan is that we're going to call it a, uh, uh, we're going to suspend this EVA. uh, Terminate is the term. You have terminate and abort. If you terminate, you know, life, life as usual, you just go back, you finish up, you put everything back in the best possible way. And then you go back. If it's an abort, you're just, going as fast as you can back to the airlock. This this was a terminate case. So they were just going to send us back and I was going to go back and Chris was going to put everything nice and nice and pretty and then follow me. Unfortunately, he was going to follow me from a completely different route because the choreography of the EVA had led us in such a way that we could not be routing our safety tethers at the same on the same side of the station. So even though we were collocated, our paths were completely on opposite side of the station. This is important because when they told me to go back, I looked at Chris and and we, we had this moment of very clear understanding that I would have loved for him to come back with me and he wanted to come back with me, but we couldn't because of, the, of this routing. So I said, okay, Chris, I'll see you at the airlock. And I start translating back again with this water bubble. Imagine this water bubble uh, on my head. And uh, as I was navigating around the different parts of the station, you have to change your orientation because there are things that are called no tacking zones, either because you can damage them or because they can damage your suit. So you kind of have to navigate in three dimensions. 
one of these paths had me moving upside down. So I had to do this motion where all at once my legs were pointing up, my head was pointing down. And in, like in the best stories, three things happened at that same time. I went upside down, the water shifted and covered my eyes, my nose and my ears, and the sun set all at the same, exactly the same time. Now, if you think of a sunset on the ground, you know, it's something quite enjoyable. You look at it for half an hour, all the different colors, but in orbit, it happens at, in an instant. When the sun sets is, hey, there's light, and now it's, there's no light, there's nothing. It's, it's pitch black, and because there is no atmosphere, there's no refraction, the lights that you have on the helmet only create a cone about, about this big. Then there is nothing on the outside of the cone of light. And with my eyes covered in water and my nose covered in, completely filled with water because the capillary effect, it just filled up, bloop. Now I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't see anything. And I, when I tried to communicate to the ground saying that I was in trouble, I called Chris, I called the ground, I called the station. I had no answer. Wow. They couldn't hear me and I couldn't hear them. So let's say that at that point was a little less than comfortable because again, I didn't, the other thought I had is how much time do I have? Because I think that water keeps coming and is it, is it going to fill up my helmet? So I had a couple of choices in my mind because I was disoriented at that point. I really, you know, it was only my second spacewalk and uh, uh, as a rookie. I thought maybe I can wait here until Chris realizes that something's wrong, comes look for me. Uh, but how much time do I have before the water reaches my mouth? And then you can't breathe if your nose is plugged. So uh, first of all, I didn't know where the water was coming from, if it was even drinkable, but I didn't know how much time I had. So I decided that the only option for me was to go back. But how do you go back when you don't see anything? It's not like you, you can just let go and hope to, to get to get back, you have to navigate a very specific route. So I went back to my basic training where I'm like, okay, I know what the station looks like. And I know with my gloves, I have to feel the, the handles, the right handles for me to get back. And the only way I could tell which way to go was because we have the safety tether with about a pound and a half of force kind of pulling you a little bit. And I, know, I knew that the safety tether was pointing me in the right direction. The problem with the safety tether is that it's a metallic cable. If you get wrapped around it, you are really, really in trouble. So you have to be careful about how you manage it. So anyway, that from that moment starts eight minutes where I am constantly talking to the ground telling them, this is where I think I am and this is what I think I'm doing. And the ground hears nothing. So they have no idea that I'm in trouble until about seven minutes later, when I get finally navigate myself in completely in the, in the blind to the airlock. And now I have a direct line of sight with the ground and they hear this communication. I'm at the airlock, pause, there's a lot of water. Those are the, that's the first sentence that they hear. And I didn't even remember saying that. I, I, re, I found out that I said that about six months later when I heard the recording because it was very unusual of me to say something like that because to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't communicate any information. But I guess that at that point, it was something that was really not only on my head, but in my head that 
you know, this is not normal. This is, this is bad. When I got to the airlock, luckily the light inside was on. We always leave it on, even in the, and so when I, once I opened the thermal cover, I, could, I had a much better sense of where I was and how to get in. So I got myself in and, uh, and then Chris, a couple of minutes later at the speed of light, he came in, he came inside, he checked everything, closed the, uh, closed the, 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 uh, the, the door, the, the hatch of the airlock. And Karen Nyberg, the I, our IV intravehicular uh, astronaut, she started repressurizing. And I had to do all the motions by memory because there are things that you have to do. You have to attach your medical, you have to flip some switches and I couldn't hear any of the instructions. So I was, I was just doing it based on my training. And, um, and then there was this, this repressurization. And when you repressurize a little bit, when you when, like when you're landing from an airplane, your ears start popping, but I couldn't pop them because I had water in my, in my nose. And when I tried to plug it using our little Valsalva system, it sheared off. It was so full with water, so wet that I have this image of it shearing off and floating in front of my eyes. Uh, so I had this terrible pain in my ears. I could not hear anything because of that. And I kept telling Karen, slow down, slow down because of the pain in my ears, but she couldn't hear me, nobody could hear me. And then I felt Chris squeezing my glove. What I didn't know is that the ground was calling me constantly saying, Luca, how are you? Luca, what's the situation? Luca, report. And I, I couldn't hear anything, they couldn't hear me. And then when, when Chris squeezed my glove, I just, you know, when you squeeze somebody's hand, what are you going to do? You squeeze back. And Chris managed to look at me through his helmet and said to the ground, look, it's fine. He's miserable. He looks miserable, but he's fine. And that was pretty much it. I, I, that's what he was. I, I was just standing still because anytime I moved, that water would slosh and get into other places. Very uncomfortable. But I remember that when finally the repressurization was open, they opened the hatch. I saw the faces of Karen and the other crew members and their the look on their face was so worried that I got emotional because, because I, I, I could feel how much, they, how much they cared. And then, you know, a few minutes later, they're finally putting me in position and they were able to remove the helmet. And we found probably a pound and a half of water in the helmet, which is, it's a lot of water when you consider how small the helmet is. And, um, but you know, once the helmet was taken off, they started asking the ground, hey, how is Luca? And I could hear them and now they could hear me. And I said, hey, you know, I'm still alive and uh, you can ask me directly. I just, I just quipped it because that was it. That was over, the situation was, was over. And uh, you know, um, when you go back and think about it, to me, that day was actually a very good day because we discovered a few things. First of all, we discovered why the helmet got flooded and now, that's not going to happen again. And then we found out that the training that we get really is a great training because it helps you not only uh, solve contingencies that you have a checklist to follow, but also those emergencies where you don't. And thirdly, I, I really realized that both the ground crew and the space crews are just, they're just made up about very good people that care and that will do anything they can to get you out of a tight spot. So. You know, here I am telling the story many years later, and I still think it was a very good day. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. And, you know, beyond the great story that I'm sure you've regaled many times, what it does bring to mind for me is the importance of an apprenticeship of skills, because I see this in mountaineering all the time. People have the money to go to Mount Everest, 
And I always say to people that um, you have to be so, um, you have to have done activities so many times. It's like tying your shoe. I could be half asleep. I could be unconscious. And somehow my fingers would tie a shoelace because I've done it so many times. And I think that that is very much the test pilot mentality um, and, and, and really astronaut mentality is you go through a lot of training and then, you know, you slow down your head even during an emergency to think, okay, let me methodically think what I have to do. And, and th that really speaks so much to a tradition of, of space travel that guys are always trying to figure things out and they're problem solvers. Absolutely. One thing that I always tell people and, you know, cadets or students is you cannot first uh, solve one problem at a time. And secondly, focus on the solution, not on the problem. So at that moment in time, I didn't know where the water was coming from. I had no idea. And honestly, I didn't care. I just wanted to, uh, to solve the problem, which was get back to the airlock. That's what I need to do. What's the next thing I can do? Maybe I can open the valve that we have on the side of the helmet, which will create a flow of air. But then you have air coming out. Or I have a bigger valve on the center, but if I open that one, the emergency oxygen comes on and you cannot close it. And so you create a bigger problem. And then you only have 30 minutes maximum of oxygen. So before I do that, I want to be sure that, that I can get there in time. For, there was one other silly thought on, that, that was in the back of my head, kind of on the backside. And it was the funny part is like, I really don't want to be the Italian astronaut that drowned in space. Cause that's no, no. Look good. So, <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> that's great. Hey, Luca, I, I just want to thank you for, uh, coming on with me today and <clears throat> excuse me, you know, what I really enjoyed is not as much that you're a great astronaut or test pilot because you really are, but it, it's really the, the, the spirit of how you conduct your life that from my perspective has been the most inspiring. And, and I think that, uh, that whole idea of working towards the greater cause has a lot of merit in, in today's society where I, I do feel there's a lot of selfish behavior. So thank you so much for, for being uh, with me today. Thank you for your words, Richard, and thank you for having me. It's been, it's been a true pleasure. Same here. Every great expedition has to come to an end, but that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right, get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time, www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.